Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion. On this podcast, we learn about recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We ask scientists how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn about what makes a new species and hear some behind the scenes stories along the way. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion, and I'm here with biologist Alejandro Ortega, researcher at the Kamai Foundation and co-founder of Tropical Herping, two organizations that work to preserve tropical biodiversity through outreach. He's here today to tell me about his paper in the September 15th issue of Zoakies, in which he and his co-authors described three new species of ground snake in a very unexpected place. Welcome, Ale. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Zoe. I'm glad to be here. So the snakes we're talking about today are colubrid snakes, specifically the genus Attractus. Can you tell us briefly what they look like and how you tell this genus apart from other snakes? Sure. Uh, These ground snakes are different from other snakes in the sense that they are more archaic looking, meaning that they have characteristics that if you look at it, would think are ancestral. So they are smaller, usually brownish with small eyes and also have this, um, this the shape of, a, of the head is, in, is a little round made for burrowing. And well, I can explain, but I also wanted to show you. I actually have one right here that was uh, given to me by, by a local school teacher that he found it dead on the road. So this is a standard size, as you can say, this is an adult. But you can, you can also find ground snakes that measure up to one meter in length. So you have the whole spectrum from this size all, all the way to one meter. So it's, it's coiled in a little jar. It's a lot smaller than um, I expected. Yes, they are small and this is why they're usually not seen. Most other visitors to the jungles and cloud forests of Ecuador see the other snakes, the, for example, the whip snakes, the rat snakes, the vipers, because they are out in the open and are, are usually more uh, colorful. But these ground snakes are adapted to living under soil, so they need to be much more uh, camouflaged. And you mentioned cloud forests in, in Ecuador, um, and, and that's where the majority of your research took place. Can you tell us about the cloud forests and what that habitat looks like? Yes, uh, cloud forests are, are a magical place. I have to describe them more like a, you have these steep cliffs and where all the humidity is going up towards the top of the mountains. And in this um, phase, of the of the Andes is where most of the moisture is becomes precipitation. So you have cloud cover pretty much every time. The trees are a bit a little bit lower than in the than in the jungles, which are at lower elevations. And also you have a lot of bromeliads. Every tree has epiphytes, mosses, bromeliads, and everything is um, humid and moist all the time. So much greenery. It does sound magical. It is. <laughs> 
And uh, these are cryptozoic uh, snakes, and you mentioned that as well, but can you go into a little more detail? What does that mean? Yeah, this word uh, cryptozoic means that these animals live under, under the soil, under rocks, in deep crevices, or in other words, are not out in the open. And if they're not out in the open, how do you collect them? Finding the ground snakes is not simple, really. You need... You need to go to this cloud forest and bring a shovel or some other sort, some tool for digging. And you start to dig, you dig, you can spend five, six, seven hours digging. And when an outsider comes and sees what we are doing, thinks that we are looking for maybe some mineral or we are digging up a treasure or maybe we just uh, sowing the seeds for potato crops or something like that, but they, they don't realize that we're actually looking for snakes by digging in the soil. And another way to look for them is just to lift rocks and rotten logs. I'm sure uh, an unexpected part of your job is, is talking to people about what you're doing and why it's important. It is. Um, people don't often, like villagers in, in many parts of the Andes, are not accustomed to coming across uh, people who study snakes. Usually the first response we get when we say that we are focused on fi finding snakes is, why would you ever do that? They ask us, we are trying to get away from these animals, why are you trying to get close to them? And this is when an interesting conversation starts to take place because we explain, oh, we are here precisely to look for the snakes that you are trying to get away from because we study them. And we are not only uh, researchers uh, trying to understand uh, so many questions about these animals, but we are fascinated by them. And they, these uh, local people become excited as well. I think it's contagious when they see that we find one of these snakes and we become so crazy and so excited. Oh, we finally found the animal that we were looking for. And then we show it to them and explain why it's special and why it is not dangerous. And are these snakes usually found in areas that are inhabited by a lot of people? Is that um, beneficial to them? Mm, these ground snakes usually try to avoid people. And for a good reason, the snake that is found is usually killed on site or it is killed by the pets of the, of the people, by cats and dogs. So for the most part, they try to go to places where they are unseen. They prefer untouched cloud forests in very remote places. Of course, since these areas are so remote, getting to the snakes is hard work. So we usually find them in places that are right in the middle, not where there's more people or where there's no one, but some at the border between the forest and pastures or a crop or maybe even some uh, a rural garden or some other human uh, building. So at the border is right where you usually find these animals. And with the increased development of the cloud forest area, does that push more snakes towards uh, areas with more people? They, these snakes have no other place to go when, when the cloud forest is destroyed. Usually what you have is a large stretch of cloud forest that is uh, clear to make room for a crop. And the snakes have to escape from this new clearing 
and try to find refuge in some adjacent areas. So usually when, once this happens, they end up in places where you would not expect to come across snakes. And this is where human-snake interactions occur. And in this paper, you describe finding snakes actually in a graveyard. Yeah, this, uh, this story of how we came across this, this new species of ground snakes actually was unexpected. We were on an expedition to find extinct species of frogs, not snakes, in the border between Ecuador and Peru. So this expedition was unsuccessful. We did not find any of the extinct toad species that we were looking for. And we were going back to one of the main cities in southern Ecuador. And when we were driving back, we were hungry and decided to stop at the house of a a woman there to ask if she could provide food for, for us. Uh, she said yes and have a seat. We were welcomed into her house, having a, a cup of coffee and started talking about frogs and snakes. And she heard this conversation, this, uh, this, this woman, and she said, oh, I also see snakes in, in the graveyard that it, of this small town when I go to visit my deceased uh, family members. Said so you should go there because it's the best place to find them. And I said, Oh, this sounds interesting. And I asked her, How do these snakes look like? And she described, she said the snakes were brownish, small, small eyes, and with a, a, a yellow belly. I said, Oh, this sounds interesting. It doesn't fit the description of the snakes I was expecting from this place. So I said, Okay, let's finish eating and go to this place. Uh, we brought the shovels and arrived at this graveyard, which was very small, just a few, a few dozen uh, graves, no, no more. But there was a lot of vegetation and trees be- between the graves, and the soil was very, very soft. And we started digging besides in the, the areas around the graveyard, and this is where we found the first uh, poof. It was so exciting because we saw like trying to escape in between the in between the roots and the, the rotting logs when we lift some of the of the ground. So yeah, we found it, we grabbed it and said, uh, immediately I thought, this looks like a new species. It, it, it does not look like anything I've seen before because it has a specific kind of belly coloration. And one of my, my colleague, Amanda, also found another one. And now we have the male and the female after like a three or four hours searching in this graveyard. So it was, it was luck, but we, we had a clue, of course. This lady gave us a tip that there might be snakes in this area. So yeah, sometimes the expedition that you're on fails miserably, but you are rewarded in some other way. So this is the cool thing about being a field biologist is usually doesn't go the way you plan, but if you are working in an extremely diverse part of the world, like the Andes or the Amazon, every time you find something interesting, there's always surprises. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you said, "Wow, this looks like a new species." But how did you how did you actually figure out that it was a new species? Yeah, the process of confirming a species as as new to science is, is different. You have to the first step, of course, is to collect some sort of sample. The sample can be in the form of a blood sample, scales, even just a photograph. But usually 
in areas that are so remote you take a whole specimen and back to a museum. For example, a specimen is yeah just a preserved snake in alcohol. Many people, many people in these areas have snakes preserved in this way because they found them inside their houses or run over by vehicles and they gladly provide them to you for the benefit of science. Uh, after you get the, these samples back to the museum, you start to compare them to other species that are already known. In which way you count, for in, the, in, the, in the particular case of snakes, you need to count scales, take photos, measurements, and also analyze them at the DNA level. Because once you find a percentage of difference at the genetic level, that gives you a clue that you might be in the presence of a new species. It's a lot of work. In the case of this uh, particular group of snakes, it took us maybe about two months of actually comparing between other snakes and finally arrived to the conclusion, yes, they are in fact new species. And then you also used a color pattern characterization. You compared the color pattern, um, which doesn't yep. work on many, many other species. Uh, in, in a lot of cases, color can be unreliable, but can you, can you tell us more about what that process is for snakes and, and why it does help with the analysis? I'm actually a big proponent of using coloration as an important way of telling species apart. These snakes have a particular coloration on the belly. This has an immaculate yellow belly, one of the new species, and the other ones had a black line along the belly, a remarkable difference that is that makes it easy to tell the two species apart. I have to say that not many, not many researchers uh, rely on coloration because they come from from a different kind of uh, taxonomic school. Let's call it that way. They many researchers and taxonomists working in Europe or the United States, when they discover a species, sometimes they discover it in a museum and in alcohol-filled jars, but the specimens were collected by other people tens or even hundreds of years before. So many taxonomies describe species without seeing them alive. For Latin American taxonomies, this is not usually the case because we are the same people doing the field work and also the museum and lab work. So we see the animals when they are in full color. After you place them in alcohol, they lose the color. And the color is an important uh, part of establishing the differences. You have very minute uh, shades and hues and you need to see the iridescence with different sorts of light when you first find it. Something I do personally is every time I see a species that I think might be new, I take the picture immediately and then I take more pictures the same day and the same night and the day after and then I take pictures again once once the animal is in alcohol filled jar and usually you see the difference is tremendous all the this color is lost for example the the green becomes blue the red is lost the yellow becomes pale whitish so you need to see the animal alive to be able to use the coloration as a feature. Thank you. My background is in entomology and 
some of the specimens or many of the specimens that I work with are up to a hundred years old. So exactly, you don't how you don't imagine how they could have looked like. I imagine paleontologists face a similar problem. They they have to just be extremely creative trying to reconstruct how a dinosaur may have looked like with so little information. And uh, yeah, modern systematics have uh, have that problem too because some of these animals are in so remote places. You have to you have to drive to these remote areas, then go in boat, then in mules for hours, and then you might never go there again because maybe the place no longer exists or a dam was built or now it's occupied by guerrilla so yeah museum collections are super important but you before many of these collections did not have associated photo banks but i think it's very important to have the photo banks associated because there's so much information in the live coloration really highlights the importance of using different technologies to your advantage. Of course. Uh, and, and speaking of different methodologies, um, you also included some reclassification in this paper. Can you talk to us about that? Sure, yes. There is um, a snake that, that was described several decades ago from Colombia. It's an Amazonian snake. Uh, we found a snake... The same snake we found it in Ecuador, but other researchers believe that it was this, uh, this strange-looking Amazonian ground snake actually was part of another species, the greater ground snake. But this, uh, this new one um, was smaller, had a different coloration, different behavior too. And I compared to the other and said, no, this... The original description that happened a long time ago was correct. Uh, subsequent works tried it to uh, merge the two species, which means that the, the one of them is no longer valid. But what we did in this work is what we taxonomists call to resurrect or revalidate a species. So the original work was correct, but uh, another researcher disagreed and basically said that the species is no longer valid. But this is how taxonomy is. It's a fluid science. It's nothing is set in stone. Uh, for example, this work that we have done may, may be corrected or changed or adapted with subsequent works. And this is how it is. Um, it's always a surprise. Of course, it's. I understand that conservationists and tourists and photographers find it hard to keep up with the changes and sometimes it can be a little bit annoying but I think as taxonomists we have a responsibility to to try to keep everything in order and to dig deep in the literature and the work of previous biologists of many generations ago and try to to study their work in detail and in my experience I've seen that some of these original naturalists were correct pretty much all of the time it seems like there was a, a few decades where many of the, the work of these um, previous or original first taxonomies was, um, was corrected or changed, but in my experience, they were pretty much right. It is surprising what you could do uh, just looking at the animals and just uh, with a single specimen, you can get so much information. So some things have changed. Some methodologies are new, photography, 
genetics, species distribution models, but the core is still the same. To a, a new species is essentially a hypothesis. You need to prove that your hypothesis is correct. And what is this hypothesis? That this animal that you have in your hand is different from another. And you have to provide as much evidence as you can. And yeah, sometimes these taxonomists don't agree. But with time, with more information, more methodologies, eventually, I think most end up agreeing. And this is how taxonomy is done. You and your team ended up with three different species. Um, so Attractus discovery, Attractus scap, and Attractus Michael Sabini. Yes, it's... Um... I think as biologists the working on systematics or discovering new species, we like to honor the, the people who are making our work possible. We also like to name species in honor of our friends and loved ones. And in this particular case, what I wanted to do is that to use this opportunity to honor the work of the conservation organizations and people who made the work possible. This is no different than than what Galileo or other of these famous astronomers did with their discoveries, honoring after the patrons that paved the work. It is the same thing. Uh, for me, I take a lot of pleasure in being able to, uh, to bring attention to the work of the, for example, the Explorers Club Discovery Expedition Grants, which is the one that I applied for to find these uh, extinct species of toad. Since I didn't find any toad, oh my God, I have to somehow make them that make them feel that it was worthwhile to support my work. And yes, it was because I discovered this cool new species of snake, which wasn't what we were looking for, but still very interesting. Also with SCAP is, uh, is to honor another conservation organization that's doing incredible work. And the two, one of the things that they have in common is that they support young researchers at the beginning of their career and also people, Latin American scientists working in their own countries, which is a, a great advantage because as a biologist working here in South America, getting funding is so hard. It's, it's not a priority of the government at all. So you need to be creative to reach out to other parts of the world and see what, what ways can you bring attention and that way get support for this work that is so important. What do these three new species mean for the biodiversity of Ecuador and why does this discovery matter? With these three new species of ground snakes, we actually have reached over 490 reptile species in Ecuador. It is a big deal. Yeah, it, it is a big deal because this place Ecuador as the 10th more species rich country in the world uh, in reptiles. So it's a lot, and what makes it, what makes it even more interesting is the fact that the the rate at which new species are being discovered in Ecuador is higher than in many other countries, which does not necessarily mean that there are more species, but maybe that more work is being done, more effort, and this is inspiring because it means that we are actually achieving something, and. Of course, we, we don't really know how, how important and critical these new species might be for the population in general, but the fact that we have discovered them in the first place is a great first step. Just as an example, um, I've noticed that these ground snakes are, 
are the main prey item of coral snakes. In my opinion, it might be an important source of biomedical discovery because as a prey of coral snakes, they are sure to have developed some sort of resistance to the venom. And coral snake antivenom is extremely rare and many people in Ecuador don't have access to it. It's virtually absent. I think it would be interesting to look into this, into this ground snake blood to see what sort of defense they have about the coral snake envenomation. This is just an idea on top of my head of how it might be important to conserve these animals. The other thing is that they, they feed primarily on earthworms. So of course they play an important part in the food chain. We don't know exactly how it would affect the whole ecosystem if they were not there, but sure, it would have an impact. And of course, the third uh, reason why I think is this discovery in particular is important is it brought a lot of attention to this particular type of snakes that is usually not well known, even though it's the most species-rich snake genus in the world. So if you like snakes at some point, you should have heard about it, but no, because most kids, for example, learn about the anaconda, the eyelash viper, the Ferdelands, the Gabon viper, but they don't hear about the, the ones that are, are hidden, even though there are more species of it. With this discovery, I think we're bringing attention to this understudy group of snakes, which means a lot to me because there's a lot of species that are still left to be described. Maybe not so many in Ecuador because we've done, uh, we've done a lot of work here, but for example, Colombia, oh, it's a big hole in the systematics of the ground snakes. So I'm, I will be focusing more time and attention trying to help the herpetologists there to discover the species in this country. That's really exciting. I think many people might assume that we have found all of the snakes there are to be found, but especially with unique habitats like the cloud forest, there's so much we don't know. Exactly. And... Consider this for a second. There are many places in Latin America where for many decades you simply could not go because it was unsafe to go, there were no roads, or simply because the logistics would not allow it. And now this is start slowly starting to change. Now we can go to very far away places with different, uh, different results. And it's exciting because you don't know what to expect. And as I said, is you have no way of ha having an idea of what will show up in trips like this. It's always a surprise. Sometimes you might be looking for ground snakes, but all, lo and behold, you find a new viper or a new gecko or insects. Every time we find insects, of course, <laughs> the entomologists have it harder than we do. I think that we are in a sweet spot, not so hard as entomologists have it because they have Oh, like thousands of new species and there's so little of them. And of course, I think we have it a little bit simpler than, for example, ornithologists that have more information at hand. And so, yeah, every, every biologist, every taxonomist chooses its particular group that wants to focus on and devotes its entire life to this. So, and this is what I have done. I decided oh, snakes are my thing. I think there's not so many people working on them. They need a lot of attention. Many are being killed. So 
I am going to devote my life to try to change this. And are you happy with your choice? Yeah. Oh man, it's cool. I love it. It's everything is everything about finding and describing new species of snake is rewarding. From the project conceptualization to go to the field to share the experience to take the pictures and finally to disseminate all this information to show it to the world. Every every step of the way is fantastic. It's an, a great adventure. Well, congratulations on your three newest discoveries and um, good luck with all of the rest that are out there. Thanks, Zoe. Yeah, uh, I'm excited. I hope that we, I can come back and we can talk about new discoveries soon. I would love that. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks to you. <laughs> Alejandro Ortega's paper, Leaving No Stone Unturned, Three Additional New Species of Attractus Ground Snakes from Ecuador, Discovered Using a Biogeographical Approach, is in the September 15th issue of Zookeys. See the episode details for a link to the paper, and to learn more about Ale and his work, you can follow him on Instagram, at Alejandro Ortega TH, or visit the Kamai Foundation's website, www.kamai.bio. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Species Podcast. This podcast was created by Brian Patrick and is edited and produced by Zoe Albion. If you would like to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash newspeciespodcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with questions or feedback, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>